This is the Progression Project Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. That was my daughter, Kemper, on the new intro. A bunch of fun changes coming to the show here. Very excited today about our guest, Egan Inoue. He is a two-time world racquetball champion, turned two-time world Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion, and now is as foil-brained as the rest of us. Really looking forward to sharing this conversation. It's one that I recorded a week or so ago, and I have spent a lot of time thinking back to the lessons that I have learned from talking to Egan. It is very strange to find someone who has achieved mastery across multiple disciplines. I'm fortunate to be friends with Josh Waitzkin, who has been on the show, who has done the same thing in chess and then in Tai Chi push hands and then a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt as well. And Egan shares a common DNA from my limited time speaking with him on the show to, to Josh. And, and what is so incredible to me is that generally when we think of someone who has achieved mastery, we usually attribute some sort of innate physical talent to that mastery, and we negate the work. And what being friends with Josh has taught me and watching him over probably about the last eight years, and then in talking to Egan here, it is not the innate talent that separates these folks from the rest of us. It is a work ethic and a process. And in this show, Egan shares a lot of the process that he has found, the fundamental learning blueprint. And through the conversation, you can understand his work ethic. So it's fantastic. I learned a lot. I'm very grateful that he came on the show and I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Before we jump in, let me give you some notes about the Progression Project, where we're headed, and what you can expect over the next few months, years. It has come to a point to where lots of folks are listening and I am getting emails and DMs on Instagram with folks asking for more from the initiative. I had a couple people send me suggestions for podcast editing and I have had folks sending me recommendations for guests or topics or asking for more, you know, maybe even writing because I've been testing so much gear, everyone's very interested. And it's come to a place to where as a hobby, it's not sustainable. It's taking too much time, but I really enjoy it. And so it's either keep it a hobby and continue to do things. You know, the way that I have been doing things for the last two years of doing the show is minimal effective dose, which is something that I really try to adhere to in most of life is I think if you can do the minimum necessary to get by in the things that are not absolutely necessary, then you have more time for the things that you love or the things that are necessary. And this has been one of those things. It's been fun, but it has not been something that I have been really focused on outside of the water. So given the interest and how I think it's fun, it's exciting, I've decided to dive in wholeheartedly and actually take the podcast and the progression project seriously again i did this years ago and so now i'm, I'm going to dive back in and what that means is that i will be spending more time editing the show and preparing for guests which is something that i, I really don't do right now also 
there's going to be a website, progressionproject.com, which I've just started working on, which will have a forum because it's something that does take up a lot of time. And I think that it is a very, I love doing it, but it's inefficient is answering what off questions on Instagram because I get so many of the same questions and it's silly to have to do it over and over again. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna move, please still send all the questions you want. I'm happy to answer them. Please do it on the forum on progressionproject.com. And that way we can start building a database of all this and have a repository for all the knowledge that all of you have that I've learned and everything. And so we, I would like your input as much as I'd like to share mine because it helps me along the way. So that's awesome. And then the last thing that I'll talk about today that I will announce is that I am going to host and I'm going to try to get some partners on this. I'll be hitting up some people here very soon. But because we are in the strange COVID world and the foiling sport is spread out across the world, I'd like to host a contest, a video contest. And so I will unveil the specifics of what that will entail over the next, I don't know, couple weeks. But there will be a cash prize. There will be a requirement for what the videos are. I think it'll be prone. Uh, so it's apples to apples and three to five minute videos. And we'll have a panel of judges. I've already talked to a couple people, folks you have heard of that have been on the show that are as knowledgeable on foiling as anyone else. And then probably some sort of social sharing so you can push your score and it helps build the, uh, the sport and the platform. So I hope that anyone listening out there who has been pushing their game and dropping InstaClips will think about producing a, a well-produced three to five minute foil video with some stipulations that we will announce soon to be a part of the contest. There'll be a first, second, and third prize probably some swag in there too. If anyone out there wants to donate, if you want to help sponsor the video contest, let me know. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and I can't wait to see what comes out. You know, in the Instagram world that we live in right now, you are not incentivized to produce longer form content and highly produced content because it's also fleeting. So I'd like to, to create something that will help you guys produce, you know, quality clips, spend some time on it not just one-off edits to get up, you know, to keep the feed up to date. So yeah, that's a heck of an intro today. I am super stoked. I think it's going to be a fun run. I would love to hear any of your thoughts on where this can go. The idea is building something for the community that will be valuable and that'll be a lot of fun and, you know, probably entail, monetizing will entail something like some advertising at the beginning of the show and possibly some ads on the website. We'll see, but I'm stoked and I hope that you guys will enjoy it. So, all right, let's get on with Egan. This is a great show and I hope you guys love it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. To, to kick things off, Give us some background on who you are and what you've accomplished. And then I want to dive into a conversation about mastery and learning with you. Oh, sounds good. So basically, I, I started off in, in racquetball and I became the world, racquetball world champion two times. And then I moved on to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I won the world championship there two times. And then I moved on to mixed martial arts and 
I fought under the Super Brawl. I mean, I fought under all different ones, but the Super Brawl, I was the five-time world champion. And now I teach boot camps online, Zoom, slash Facebook Live private groups. And basically what I do is fitness and my passion is foil boarding. <laughs> <laughs> we share that passion. Well, so, all right. I think the, the common theme on folks who listen to this show are everyone's pretty much foil brained and they're listening yeah. <laughs> because the show helps them get better. It helps me get better. And that's been the path. And the last, I don't know, 10 conversations have been pretty technical into foiling. I want this one to be pretty deep into the learning process. And I can't think of a better person to do that with than someone who's mastered so many different arts. And so when I look at someone who's mastered different arts, I think it's more about the process than about just being physically gifted in a certain area. And maybe you are a physical phenom. That's probably a given. But to be able to translate, you know, racquetball skills into mixed martial arts and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and now into foiling, that's impressive. How do you approach Let's start very broad strokes. How do you approach the learning process? What's your framework? So I think, I think the first off, I just like to say, I'm, I'm really not a, like a physical scene. I'm, you know, I've always been, you know, better than average, but not like the top of the line phenom that picks up anything and gets super good. So I have to figure out like a, a good process, like you said, like how to learn stuff. And I always start from the basics and I never skip basics. So whatever the basics may be, I always spend a lot of time on that and get that sound. And then from there, you know, you always make your big goal. What do you want to be able to do? And then I break down to little steps along the way, like stepping stones, mm -hmm. crossing this big river. That's what I always imagine. And each stone has what I'm working on. And like you said, it's the process. That's the main thing. I mean, the big goal first and then the process makes it easy and you just focus on the process and at some point you'll get to that goal. So let's start with racquetball since that was the first. Mm -hmm. And were there other sports activities that you dove into that helped you learn the learning process before racquetball? Yeah, I mean, I played baseball, basketball as a kid and then and then I went straight to racquetball and I, I learned most of what I've learned from racquetball and, and during those times of you know, the tough times, all the obstacles that came in front of me. That's where I started coming up with all of this training protocols and mindset protocols. And it wasn't just a physical thing. It was a lot of it is mental. And I think it's the same for foil boarding and anything else that you do. I feel like the process for me has been the same. Talk through the process in racquetball and how that unfolded, how you learned the process, what the process was. The, the, the difficult points, the plateaus, the inevitable plateaus, and then we can kind of move from there forward. So racquetball has a lot of like, like right to left movements, front to back movements, different angles. And a lot of people start playing, like just playing games to get good. And those guys get good really fast in game situations, but they only get to a certain level. So what happened was I was lucky to have a really good coach when I was younger. And this coach told me that, you got to work on the fundamentals. So like, for example, a certain shot, I would hit thousands of that certain shot every single day and literally a thousand shots a day of a certain shot. And each day I practiced a different shot. And the idea to that was that I'd master the swing, the stroke, and then later I'd be putting in movement to it. And so it was like a step-by-step -step process. It was a slow process, but it got me to where I wanted to go. Are you familiar with 
Go ahead. I'm Go ahead. Go uh, I was going to say, are you familiar with Anders Ericsson, his work, the peak, the 10,000 hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. How, how does, how does I, that fit in? Do you, are you a believer in that? I a hundred percent believer in that. Anders Ericsson was, he passed this year, which was really sad, but he was on the podcast. If you guys did not listen to that show, it's one of the favorite, my favorite podcast I've ever done. I think it's episode two or three or four early on. And that might give a good kind of uh, foundation for some of the things that Egan and I are going to talk about here. What was your process of feedback and iteration in those thousands of reps? For me, for racquetball, in those thousands of reps, they're like to hit a perfect shot. There's a, you know, a different height that you hit it at and how straight you hit it. So those are like the guidelines. Like it had to be perfect. And and when I'd say I hit a thousand shots, it wasn't a thousand of missed shots. It was a thousand of shots that were good. Mm-hmm. So it would take me hours and hours in the court all by myself, which to me is not really a hard thing to get done because it's easy to get to the racquetball court and it's easy to drop the ball and hit the ball. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it sounds weird. Mm-hmm. It's not that easy, but it's easy to do. Unlike, say, surfing, you can never get a wave or foil boarding that's exactly the same. Right. So to work on the same type of skills or like to get a, a cut that good, it, it's the setup, the wave's got to, is different. It, it's, it's a lot harder to get good at foil boarding and surfing. I agree. I think that's one of the things that's beautiful about pumping on foil is that it's a <laughs> yeah. pretty un, compared to other, you know, maneuvers in surfing, it's fairly static. So you can really mm-hmm. get good at pumping through deliberate practice. So how much was coaching a part of those reps? Or did your coach kind of teach you the mechanics and then you were working on them? Like, I don't know if video was a part of that. I'm a big believer in video for feedback. Yeah, oh, totally, 100%. I mean, I used to coach myself for a while and I was using video. Okay. And then there's a certain point when you want to get to the next level, your, your knowledge, like for myself, my knowledge in the sport was no matter how much research I did, is never going to be the same as someone who was a champion. Mm-hmm. You know, and so at the time, you know, the people who were the best in the state of Hawaii were the ones that I went to and I, I got, I paid for private lessons or my parents paid for private lessons. And what I would do is whatever they taught me, I'd write down every single thing that they taught me. And I made sure that I did my 10,000 hours or almost 10,000 hours on it before I went back for another lesson. Wow. So coaching is a big part because, you know, they don't guide you wrong. if, If you get a good coach. Right. They'll guide you the right way. So so how do you assimilate then the compartmentalized skill of, you know, the perfect stroke to a whole game dynamics of a game? Because they're not necessarily the same thing. You could have a great practice player who then is not necessarily great in the games because they don't see the court. So it's a different skill set, right? Well, yeah, I mean, because now just hitting the ball is one part of it. It's also foot speed and movement. Right. And then putting it all together where the timing of everything is right. Just like foil boarding. I mean, you can pump and pump, but if your timing gets thrown off by something, everything goes bad. Yep. And it's the same idea. Like racquetball is exactly the same thing. I mean, you just get thrown off. You know, you can get thrown off by the ball hits the wall or, or unexpectedly comes at a different angle than you expected. And then it all becomes now footwork because you know your stroke is good. Yep. But your body's got to be set up in the right position. And that's where your foot speed comes in. So, so that's how it kind of translates. 
one of the things that you mentioned early on is a mindset. What's the, can you explain the difference between your training mindset and your competition mindset and how you kind of weave in and out of the two of those? So the training mindset is where you just set your mind that you get, this is the goal and this is how you're going to do it. Right. And then the game mindset has to have more than that. It, it has to have not only focusing on the, your stroke, but your movement, your thoughts. I mean, a lot of times in a game situation, it's how you're thinking, what you're thinking, what sometimes a guy will do something or he'll say something that gets you to think something different that you shouldn't be thinking because your mind should be clear, right? And so what I started doing was during my practice sessions, I would imagine like it was game. So I started visualizing more. So visualization started playing a bigger part in racquetball, mm -hmm. which is a big part of anything that you do. Yep. You visualize and you visualize each shot that I hit. I was visualizing a game situation. And then that way, when I go into a game, it feels like. That's something that I do post session too, is if I have a really good mm -hmm. session or a really bad session, I'll kind of just lay down and, and meditate and kind of resurf the waves and. Mm -hmm. you know, feel through, or I'll do it as I'm breaking down video the same way. That's a really good point. So talk about the transition. Why'd you get out of racquetball? What happened? So rac racquetball, I had my own racket company called E-Force and we were making, you know, we're doing about a million dollars a year in, in profits. And then my partner ripped me off. And then, so I kind of didn't want to uh, play racquetball as much anymore. And then we sold the company because he wouldn't sell the company to me and then he wouldn't buy the company. So I, we ended up selling the company and now I was working for a company that I founded, which just, I just didn't like. Right. And you know, I, I had a couple injuries along the way, you know, through those hard times. And then I got back into the racquetball scene again and I, I could tell I wasn't, I was in the top five, but I was never going to be number one again. The younger players that came up through that year of injury, I could just tell that there's no way I was going to beat these kids. How could they you tell? Like the next level. You know, they move quicker. The reaction times are quicker. There were, there were like newer shots that they were doing that I couldn't do. And it was just like the times have just changed. You know, I, I don't want to say it like, like putting myself like as if I was a Slater, but it's kind of like you watch Slater surf and you watch the new school guys and it's like, He's awesome. I mean, he's an unbelievable surfer, but his, his time's come. Right. That's exactly where he is. That's how I felt. Yeah. There were those couple awkward years on the tour where they stopped judging airs like they probably should have just to keep the Mick and Parco and Slater competitive, right? All right. So you move from racquetball. What was the come down like? One of the things that I'm always interested in is... It's really, I've, I am happiest when I have a big goal, you know, like I did the, yeah. you know, Costa Rica stand up tour for a couple of years and, you know, it was so fun training for events and going through that whole process. And then, you know, the end of the season, you know, you, there's a kind of a depression that sets in. I can think that some, someone like you who, you know, trains for, I don't know how many years, but two time world champ in racquetball, there's gotta be a come down after that. How did you manage that? You know, that's so interesting that you bring that up because it's been something that I've had to deal with, you know, to transitioning from one sport to another sport. And, you know, I played professional racquetball for 10 years. So I was traveling the world for 10 years. When I decided to quit, it was definitely like you're you're at a loss. Like you don't know what to do. Yep. You know, and I, I was really fortunate that at the ending of my racquetball career, I was starting to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
And so I kind of had something and, you know, and, and when I was in that lost time where I was trying to figure out what to do, I was training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, you know, I, I kept hearing this, that the best guys in the world are Brazilians and nobody else are, is any good at, at Jiu Jitsu. And I, it started to get into my head and I started to be like, wow, why? Like, I don't get it. Like, why does everyone in the United States think that only Brazilians are the best at Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? And I know they kind of founded it and they made it popular, but I mean, I, in my head, I just had a hard time with it. And then the more I started thinking about it, the more I started thinking like, hey, maybe this is what I want to do, you know, because I'll, I'll be the first non-Brazilian world champion and I'll fly to Brazil and win it. And I don't know, that was like way, uh, like everyone I said that to, they'd like almost laugh at me and be like, are you freaking, are you going to fly to Brazil and you're going to win it? You're crazy. Is that motivating? And that, yeah. And you know, that motivation, like that made me get out of that funk. Like I was like, frick, dang, I'm freaking, this is, I'm, I'm doing this. And that's what got me out of the funk. Otherwise, I don't know how I would have got out of that funk because, like you said, you're at a loss. Yeah, you know, I, I've gone through that a couple times. We lived in Costa Rica for a, a long time, for 11 years, and we had to abruptly move back. And I surfed, I mean, hours every day. I mean, I've always been addicted to the ocean, and I was, you know, Pacific uh-huh. Juice. I lived in probably the most consistent surf spot on the planet. We had about 330 days of rideable surf a year, and I was out there for every one of them and I had to move back to Florida. <laughs> I mean, the depression set in so bad and it was like, and I started thinking about, you know, this is not a unique experience to me. And I started thinking about, you know, the States that we're addicted to, which is something I'd like to talk to you about, you know, these kind of deep immersive, you know, training and, you know, foiling, I feel like is a very intense <laughs> sport, yeah. right? You know, the, the mental aspect yeah. of foiling is so beautiful. I assume Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is the same way, but the, the come down from that. And I almost feel like, you know, there's all these centers out there for people in rehab from drug addiction. I almost feel like there should be centers for people like me who get ripped away from what you do to learn how to assimilate back into a normal world. Because it was such a, I mean, it was one of the hardest oh. things I've ever done. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, um, like I said, I, I got lucky. <laughs> yeah. So what did you bring from, or, so let, let me think about this a different way. How did you approach training for jiu-jitsu? You know what? I literally took my, my, my same print, my same footprint from racquetball, and I just did the same thing. I mean, I just set it up the same way. I thought of everything the same, and I made my big goal. I wanted to be the world champion. And then I knew all the things that I needed to learn or, or the skills that I needed. I broke it all down, wrote it all down. And then I just went from one to the next. What's your optimal amount of training per day? Is there a window where you're getting the most out of it? Like, how do you structure your your training time? Oh, man, it it definitely makes a huge difference. Like, because overtraining has always been an issue of mine. Like, I'm always overtrained. I've always had issues of of not knowing when to, like, when's enough. Like, right. (laughs) you know, like, when when you get into competitions, some of them are already already flat because I are... I've already used everything up and I'm still recovering, you know, from, I'm still recovering from the workouts. And that was one of the things that I had to learn how to overcome. Is it more mental or more physical for you in, in you overtraining? Know, it was overtraining was like physically over, which I mean, we can easily do foil boarding also. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
it was actually both, you know, it was both ways. I mean, I had to learn how to control the mind because the mind wants to keep going, but the body's already saying, no, I, you know, I'm done. And that was, I think, the biggest challenge in racquetball. And I let that carry all the way through um, all the other sports that I played. You know, learning when is enough. Mm-hmm. When is it time to quit for today? Are you pretty good at walking away when you feel that moment? No, nah, I don't think I'm ever good at it. I mean, it's one of those things where it's always a hard thing. It's always going to be a challenge. But, you know, as, I'm, as, as I've been getting older, you know, I... I'm learning mm-hmm. and getting better at it. Like, you know, a good example is um, this past weekend, we were on the North Shore with like 68 Hawaiian scale with like 10 foot sets and I was towing in and it was actually my first day towing in on the foil. <laughs> and uh, there was a certain point I could feel my legs and my grip and, you know, it was getting a little unstable, it was getting a little harder to get up uh, to get started. And I knew that it's... It was good enough for today. You know, I had 10, 15 waves, good rides, long legs are burnt. Yep. Um, I knew it was time, you know, and I know that if I was a little younger and inex- more inexperienced, I would have kept pushing it because it was so fun. What do you draw from previous sports into current sports? How much do you use the, you know, I, and I should frame this a little bit. I'm, I'm a big believer that creativity Some people have innate creativity, but most of the time, I think creativity comes from experience, from just a broad understanding of different things, sometimes similar, say, skateboarding and snowboarding to foiling, or sometimes very differing music to foiling, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. creativity comes from being able to draw from, you know, different experiences. And so having achieved mastery in, say, racquetball and then doing this, you know, doing it in in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, how much were you looking back and picking up like movements from racquetball or the way you see the ball to the way you see your opponent? Is that something that, that, that you drew on or are they pretty separate in your mind? No, you know what? It wasn't like that example that you gave, but it is the same concept where it was more of a mental thing. Like I remember feeling this frustration while I was playing racquetball and it's the same frustration feeling that I feel in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but the skill set and the movement is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. But the mind can destroy you. I mean, it's like when I, you foil board and you have a bad, let's say the, the corner of your foil comes out and you have a really bad, you know, breach. Yep. It makes you not want to turn that steep again. Yep. It makes you start like questioning yourself, can I do this again? Whereas I remember from racquetball, hitting a certain shot and missing it. And I lost the match because of that. And it would make me not want to hit that shot again to win the match the next time. And it makes you tentative. And then it makes you miss the shot for sure. So what I did with that through racquetball, that mental pain of, of working through it and, and hitting more reps on it, you know, like hitting that shot more times, even more than a thousand a day. And then just keep convincing myself that, Dude, that shot is the same shot, whether it's game point or it's the first point of the game. And then so I go back to foiling and I have that same mental issue. Like, man, I don't know if I want to make that turn again. That was a pretty bad breach. Instead of saying that, I go, oh, this time I might make it. I, I got to do it. And you may eat it another 10, 15 times again, but the 11th time or the 16th time is going to happen. And no matter how many times I make that turn and I make that turn, and each time it gets better to where I can pop out the corner of, of the foil and be confident about it. Yeah. 
But if I didn't have that experience in racquetball, I could see it in other foilers. They have one bad breach and you never try that again. Or when they do, it's even more dangerous because they're tentative. Mm-hmm. So t- talk through the process of your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training and who you worked under and, and how different teachers. And now you're a coach as well. And I think it would be interesting to talk about how the, di- the learning process for different people, how you learn and how you sought out coaches that had different, you know, modes of operation. So I, when I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, my brother was my first coach and he taught me basically everything I knew. And, and as far as basics, he was a big, big on basics, which made my foundation for Jiu-Jitsu the same as like racquetball. I worked in those single, you know, things. And then my brother moved to Japan, so I lost the coach. And I was lucky to find um, Hicks and Gracie. So I was playing racquetball at the time. So I was using my travel to be able to get to California to train with Hicks and Gracie. And I'd do a private once every other week about, like, because I was going back and forth every every week. I, I Basically, in 10 years for racquetball, I traveled a million miles on just one United Airlines alone. Wow. That's how much I was flying. So every week I was in California or in Hawaii. And so I would see Hicks and Gracie and he would, you know, give me the next things to work on and the next things to work on. So, you know, that, that was kind of like my whole process for it. And, you know, as they went on that Hicks and Gracie thing, I, I, I stopped playing racquetball. So I, I lost my ability to travel. So when I was able to travel, I had to stay somewhere for two weeks. So I switched to another jujitsu school called um, the Machados. I'm a shadow jujitsu in Redondo Beach. And I stayed with them for a while and I'd stay for two weeks and then I'd come home for a couple months, get everything that I learned down and then go back again. And, you know, basically that's who I stayed with. And I won both of my world championships with them as coaches. And, you know, it was, it was a great thing because all the brothers were world champions. So it wasn't like I was training under someone who wasn't a world champion who was trying to teach me how to be a world champion. And like, you know, I'm a big believer in, in like, I won't go to a dentist that has bad teeth or I won't go to a hairstylist. Well, I don't have hair anymore, but when I did have hair, I wouldn't go to someone <laughs> that, that had a bad haircut, you know? Right. So now you've, it, what was the difference in competing in jujitsu versus competing in racquetball? How are they similar? How are they different? Uh, the skill set is a little different. Racquetball, when you lose, it's, you know, it, you can walk away easy. Sometimes jujitsu, if you lose and you didn't tap or you stayed too long under fighting a submission, when you walk away, you could be a little injured. Mm-hmm. So that was like the main difference. And, you know, a jujitsu, a racquetball match, you're playing three out of five games to 11 points. So you get three chances. I mean, the guy has to beat you three games in a row or three times to win the match. Whereas jujitsu, one mistake and you get submitted, it's done. So a jiu-jitsu match is, you know, like a five-minute round. It could last 30 seconds. Or it could go the whole distance. It's five minutes, which uh, under pressure like that, five minutes can be a long time. (laughs) So now foiling, which is, you know, what everybody here is probably interested in, it's a very Mm -hmm. different type of sport than jiu-jitsu and racquetball in in some ways. Mm -hmm. It's it's much more free-form. How do you approach training with foiling so uh, for foiling i mean like the way i broke it down is is i I just figured out from the beginning like i heard all the stories about 
you know, when guys start to surf, when they first start foiling, instead of just focus on feeling the wing and learning how to make it go up and make it go down before you start trying to turn and run down the line. You know, and I, I heard all of those stories about guys think they're still surfing. They try to go down the line the first time they're out, they fly and then, you know, they eat the wing. And I heard that happen to so many people. I thought, okay, this is my goal. I'm going to work on every single day. I'm going to just catch whitewash. I'm not going to try to take off on a green wave or a regular wave. I'm going to just whitewash it. They're not a, and I just stayed patient with that. You know, and I, I learned how to fly, learned how to bring it up and down. Then I started learning how to turn my shoulders to get the board to turn a certain way. And I never tried to progress faster than what I wanted to. So in other words, People want to start ripping right away. You see someone out there like Scotty and you're like, oh my gosh. You know, and actually when Scotty first started, I was already foil boarding and I watched him from the beginning just bypass me like within one week. <laughs> and, you know, that, like that, watching that would easily make somebody go, man, I'm going to be like Scotty. I'm going to do what Scotty does already. But I stayed with my plan. I stayed with my process. And it didn't, not that it didn't slow me down, but I never got injured. I never got hurt foil boarding. And I still, and, and, you know, at a certain point, I'm like, I'm 55. I'm not going to be doing the stuff that Scotty does or with Jack, you know, Jack Hole does. I'm not going to be able to do some of those things. So I have to make sure I'm realistic of what am I going to do? What do I want my foil boarding to look like? And I figure that out. And then that's how I broke down how I'm, what I'm practicing. And every day I go out, I'm practicing something different. So what is your ultimate goal in foiling? So for me, my ultimate goal for foiling is just being able to pretty much take off anywhere and, you know, make it like, make it look like surfing is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So like snaps, cutbacks, hit the whitewash, which, you know, I, I do most of it already, but trying to get it tighter, trying to pop the wing out on my, on, on the snaps at the top of the wave. You know, and, you know, that and making my turns look smooth, like just from one to the next. And, and that's the kind of stuff. And, and of course, pumping, being able to pump and connect and, you know, and that's going to be an issue because, you know, the, my legs burn and, and my limiting factor a lot of times is I got to stop because my legs and my lungs don't want to go anymore. <laughs> I feel you there. So Scotty's been on the show. Jack has too. And Scotty's mm -hmm. conversation, we, one of my favorites, talk about style in foiling form versus function. And that's a great show. If anybody hasn't listened to that one yet, you guys probably like it. Wise dude. I learned a lot from him for sure. Let's talk about the mental state of foiling. I find that, you know, I've always been drawn to these very immersive states, be it music or driving or surfing, you know, getting barreled kind of always been just like the epitome of like what you want to accomplish, like the pinnacle, you know, but foiling now has replaced that. And the states of foiling I find are, are incredibly deep. How important are those states to you? And, and how do you see those relating to, you know, competition? Because, you know, the flow multiplier of competition, especially with consequence world championships, I mean, that's a very deep, immersive moment to be in. How much are you chasing those states and, and how important are they and how do you relate to them? I think to me, that state of competition is, is about emptying your mind and keeping your mind empty. And I feel like with foil boarding, I, I try to get into that state every single time because what I want to do is I want to feel the wing and I want to feel the energy of the water and you know, that's what I'm, I'm looking for. And if I'm thinking, 
about anything at all, I cannot feel everything. You know, whereas like it's the same like jujitsu or MMA fighting. It's like I need to be in tune with my opponent. I gotta be able to feel my opponent. I gotta know where he's thinking, where he's leaning toward, what where is his weight, where's his balance? What's he tending? What what punches he gonna throw next? What where is he gonna move? And with foiling is the same thing. It's like Where's the wonk in the wave going to take me? Like, is there a wonk today or is there not a wonk? Is there an undercurrent today or is there not? Is the waves, are the waves consistent in the strength at every part of the, on the wall or not? Like all of those things. And is my footing in the right spot? Do I feel like, is my body in line with my foil and the ocean? And like all of those things are like the same thing. And if I'm thinking of something or something's bothering me, I don't have that. I'm still foiling and I'm still foiling good, but it's not the same feeling when I step out of the water. I don't know that. I don't know if that, you get that or. I do. <laughs> I do. What, what are your favorite moments? Walk us through like your favorite moments in foiling or in competition that you've experienced. I, you know what? In foiling and in competition, it's the same exact thing. And, and it's weird because I'm foiling and I'm not in competition with anyone but I'm in competition with my last wave or the last best wave that I had. And I think that the, my favorite moment is when you go into that Zen bubble where you're like not there, like you're there, but you're not there. Yep. And then all of a sudden the wave is over or you pump out and you're like, okay, I'm done. And then boom, you come back to reality. It's the same thing in like the world championship. It was like a dream. I was, I was there, but I really wasn't thinking. I was just flowing with everything and everything was going perfect. It's just one of those times, you know? Yep. That's also my favorite state. It's what I chase. I've been chasing yep. since I was probably 10 years old, I guess. You <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. And the first time I, I hopped on a surfboard, I was like, oh, this is kind of it. And music was it for me, yep. too. And that's wonderful. I think I relate that, too. I relate that to, like, they call it flow. A lot of yep. people call it flow, right? Yep. And it's like, it's that rhythm. It's that, it's that you're in tune with, like, I would say, like, you're in tune with the universe, sort of is the way I look at it. And that's my, you know, my most favorite feeling. Yep, it's mine too. I, I kind of look at it like it strips away the last few thousand years of evolution and you just get to go back <laughs> to being present. I kind of look at my dog sometimes <laughs> yeah. when I'm just throwing the ball with him and I just feel like he's just so stoked, you know, just back to the removing past and present or future and just being fully engaged in the present. I also think that there's a whole that there's so much information coming at us that we've built mental routines that handle most of it. So we don't actually even need to engage in it with it. Mm -hmm. And when you put yourself in a situation that's that intense, the aperture opens up and you're fully feeling all of the information that's coming your way. Where most of the time, ever since we've been probably five years old, we really kind of just navigate through routine. So you don't actually have to mm -hmm. think about making your eggs in the morning. You just make them, you mm -hmm. know, I don't know if that makes sense down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nope. there's, yep. there's a great book called rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. That's all about flow, which I think is great. If you haven't read it, you probably love it. What do you, what are you riding these days? What are you foiling on? Uh, you know what? I'm actually on the game changer right now. Oh, sick. Let's I'm talk about it. it. I just got done riding. <laughs> sick. What? So how do you set it up? What do you like about it? It's a, it's a really good foil. Yeah, you know what? what I like about it is it turns really good and then it pumps really good. Like I was surprised that it did both really good. Yep. 
and it bangs. Uh, it, was, it hits it the foam the, so good. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. And you know, with a high aspect wing, I was on the access before. Right. The the ten, you know, whatever the ten fifty or the ten ten or whatever it is, but or the nine ten I was on, and you know, when I hit the foam, man, there was so much energy hitting that foam <laughs> that man, I was having a hard time, man. I was getting flown a lot of times. Expect wing. Oh yeah. Oh man, I'm waiting for that thing to hit my back sometimes. You know, I, this game changer. I can't believe it. I just hit that foam and it feels like surfing. It's so stable in the foam. So it's so easy mm-hmm. to do. It actually, you know what? I have found though. There's an article I read a long time ago is about how people basically have like a set level of risk that they're willing to take. And so mm-hmm. you get a guy who's like super risky on a motorcycle and you make him wear a helmet and he just does riskier stuff. And I kind of <laughs> feel like the game changer brings that out in me. I have like a certain amount of risk that I'm willing to take. <laughs> then I hop on the game changer and I'm like throwing the tail out the back. I'm like, I didn't get that gutsy yet, but uh, it was, today was my fourth day on that foil. So I'm still feeling it out because it's so loose. Yeah. It, how are you setting it up? What are you riding it on? What board? And you know what? Where I, you actually, I actually went to the long, the longest fuselage to tighten it up a little bit. The longest, and yeah. I got, so you have all three? Yeah, and then I got this. I got all three. Okay. The, the most narrow one was way too, and the medium was still too loose. But I don't know if it was coming off of the high aspect. That's why it felt so loose. Probably. But I'm super happy with the longer one. And I got the sprint tail, which I think it doesn't have enough cord on it for me. Okay. What do you, like, what do you, oh, so we're about the same. I'm 190. So I feel like I, when I push, I lose water. Yep. Get that slip so feeling. That, yeah. I get that slip feeling like I, I'm not grabbing. Yep. So I got to lighten up the push, which, which is super hard for me. Cause I, I think I, I use, I probably used way too much power. Where are you putting it in the box and how do you like to, to set it up? Are you shimming the so tail? I, I not shimming the tail, but I, I what I did was I, I always have my foil seven inches from my tail. So the back of the base plate is always seven inches from my tail, no matter what foil I'm on. I, I keep it at the same spot, and that way I have something consistent. Okay, interesting. Do you, do you find though when you switch foils, then sometimes you have to go real front footed or real back footed because of the difference in lift yeah. on the foils, or even like the signature and the axis probably don't have the same amount of fuse from mast to the trailing edge of, of the foil. I find that's a really big difference too, when you're like setting up. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all, it, it feels completely different. Even my footing changed a little bit more. Did it? You know, like where I put my foot on the board yeah. um, and I'm on a four, six, I'm on a four, six, uh, uh 42 meters. What, what board? Uh, it's called radio. It's a guy, it's a ghost shaper from Pizel that shaped my board. This guy, Matt Yurix. Okay. So I got that and I got one from Aloha Brothers who is, who, you know, started, like I started with him when he was first starting to make foil boards and then we've been playing around with shapes. And so that's like my, I use his board for more, if I want more float, cause his one's 46 liters. So that's right. like my cheater board. <laughs> right on. You're probably on the bigger game changer too. I'm on the bigger one. Yeah. I think the, what what is the bigger one? It's the, um, the 1260. Is that what you're on? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's what I'm on also. You know, I went through, I I wrote it a few times. I really liked it. And then I had a hard time. I started messing with it and had a hard time getting it set back up to where I was like, I was really liking it because I like to play with my gear a lot. I move it. So unlike you, where you have your set, you know, distance and the whole thing, I'm constantly messing with stuff, trying stuff on different boards, trying different shims, (laughs) different tails. And there's a lot of pain that comes in that process. 
but then I feel yeah. like every once in a while I'll get this whole new feel that I didn't anticipate. And then, you know, I'm stoked on it and I'll, I'll ride it like that for a couple of days and I'll go back into the wormhole of just messing with gear. <laughs> but I'm riding it with the, the medium fuse right now with the Katie Maui 13.5 with like a 1.5 shim on it all the way up ah. in my box, which is probably a little oh, wow. bit farther forward than yours. And it makes the front foot pressure better. So it's like sweeping through turns better for me at the beginning kind of back in the box, it was too much back foot pressure. I felt like my back leg was burning oh. out real hard. Oh, interesting. Maybe I better try that. Yeah, try it. Either shim it up, shim up the tail so it, it puts that pressure forward or move it forward in the box and they'll both do the, the same thing. Actually, I'm ordering a new board right now that's going to have the boxes farther up. So oh, wow. I think I'm going to move even farther when I get that thing. So out there in, in Hawaii, are you... You just said you towed in some bigger, heavier surf. How'd that go? Were you on the game changer yeah. for it? No, actually, I went back to my Armstrong and I went down to the, the 1050. Okay. The only mistake I think I made was I was on the 28-inch mass instead of like my 30, my 31-inch mass. Or the, what is it, 31 or 33? I was on the shorter mass, basically. And it, every time I made a, a steep turn because of the speed, the corner would come out and I'd breach. Yeah. And did, that wing doesn't like to breach, does it? No, not at all, man. That thing, I think the speed too, like there's no chance of recovery. Oh, the, the game changer I find is the opposite. You can put the tips out all over the place. It kind of doesn't care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, yep, I didn't try that game changer on, on that. Right on. Well, so how have you, so with, with foiling now and what you've done in racquetball and in, in jujitsu, what have you drawn? Is there anything you've drawn from the other sports into foiling? Not the approach, but the actual athleticism. Yeah, you know what? I think, you know, the leg and the core strength make, play a big part for me in foiling that I, you know, that was super important in all the other sports that I played. The visualization part from the different sports plays a huge role for me in, you know, in foil boarding because I, I'm used to doing it. And so it makes it easier for me and you know, the, just the overall enjoyment. I understand obstacles. I understand, you know, like, like, like I changed, I mean, I've had every single foil that's come out basically, and I've had it, wrote it and sold it. You know, the Takuma ones, I, I had all of that early and then got rid of them all. What's the, what's the motivation behind riding all the gear? Do you learn from gear? It makes my skill better because I can ride all of them and I can feel the difference. Mm -hmm. And what I like about it is I know it's, I, I waste a lot, I lose a lot of money or I waste a lot of money doing it. But for my mental game, it's huge because I never wonder, like, you know how you see someone rip and like, wow, I always wanted to do that turn. Oh, he's on the Armstrong. I have to switch to the Armstrong. Right. You know, it's like it, all of that's gone. Like I see Scotty on this foil. I see Jack on that one. And I see another guy on, on this one and they're doing stuff like, oh my gosh. But I know that I can't do it with those foils. I, I, I know I can't do that same stuff. And that helps me a lot because I don't question myself. Mm -hmm. You know, that's actually a really interesting point. That's something that I do as well. I like to, I also go through a lot of gear and my wife and I talk about it sometimes, but she's, we, I'm a big believer that there's, let me think about the way to frame this. Like if I'm learning to pump, and I'm breaking down, say, Kane's pump, and I'm on a different foil, it's not going to be the same thing. 
So if like mm-hmm. I'm looking at Kane pump the 210, the Albatross 210, the signature, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm trying to learn that style of pumping, I want to be on that foil and I want to, you know, break it down and look at my video and then look at his video and have it be apples mm-hmm. to apples. And I've done the same mm-hmm. thing with, you know, Scotty on lift gear. You know, I think he's one mm-hmm. of the st- most stylish guys in the sport, you know, and Adam on the unifoil stuff. I think it's mm-hmm. such a great way to learn. But I think if you're on different gear, it's not necessarily going to apply and you might not get the same thing out of it. Um, yep. I have been accused of talking people into buying too much gear. And so I apologize if you're thinking about <laughs> testing more gear now, everybody out there. But I'm a huge believer in it. It's worked for me. It sounds like it works for you too. It definitely worked for me. Yeah. What are your favorite foils that you've ridden? I think the Armstrong is definitely, because that's one of the ones I didn't sell. Okay. I've kept that. I started yep. with I started Armstrong and I stayed with it. Yep. And then Signature, I used to ride the 200 Stealth, the Stealth 200. Yep. And I love that. Except it couldn't pump. I mean, I, I could get it to pump, but, you know, when I went to the Axis, it was, there was no competition. I mean, the yeah. Axis... 910 was just pumping like out of and you know i could turn that wing i could do almost everything with that wing that's the wing i stayed on the longest with the axis so that's another one i kept 200 yeah so the first version of that foil i felt was really hard to pump too and i they just hooked me up with the new 200 they thinned out the profile mm-hmm. on it so it's a thinner wing now it pumps like 40 percent mm-hmm. better it's so much better now oh, really yeah yeah, so if you're thinking about that one again, you, you might really like it for some of your better, bigger days. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yep. No, it's killer. So the Axis for pumping, I kept that one. The Armstrong. I have the, I like the 15, well, the 1550 and the 1850 were the two that I would go back and forth on. The 18 was when, when it was really small. And then the 1550, I was riding in just about every any surf that I wanted. And then do you have the 1052 then for towing? And I got the 1050 for towing. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like? I haven't, you know, we live in Florida. I haven't had a chance to ride much surf over, I don't know, eight foot faces, maybe 10 foot faces on our biggest days here. How does your approach change when you're towing in, in bigger surf? Uh, right now, like this past weekend was actually the first day that I actually got whipped into waves, like for real waves. Right. Until then I was working on getting up out of the water and then, you know, there's small little lumps. I was getting whipped into that, which was nothing compared to what we we're in this past weekend. But uh, the turning, uh, the ability to turn, it's scary because I I think on my watch it was saying I was doing like 32 miles an hour. That's flying, man. On a regular, yeah, on a regular wave, I'm doing 17 maybe at the fastest. Right. So it was over like you know almost double the speed, which made it where I was crouching down a little bit lower and, and I was widening out the turns a little more and the 1050 is really loose, but at that speed, it, it felt like it was tight. Yeah. That's nuts. That's going so fast. We, we kind of top out yeah. here. Biggest days probably on the watch, you know, low to mid twenties. I don't think I've ever gone yep. that fast on a foil. Yeah. I never went that fast until this past Sunday. <laughs> is it something you're seeking out now? Yeah. You know what? I'm trying to get not, I don't want to go that big. I'm hoping for like, you know, four foot to six foot faces on a toe in that you can ride for 10 minutes and just turn and turn and turn. And I feel like that's going to be my way to perfect my turns. 
And that's what I'm looking forward to. I mean, there's places here where the wall, I mean, it'll go until you're, you're tired. And the only way to get in on these waves, because it's all it is a swell that just keeps rolling, is um, getting towed in. And that's the only reason I started, you know, wanting to tow in. Yeah. Was to perfect my skills even more for regular paddle in. You know, the, the waves that Kiahi and Rio Stevens are towing out there, I know it's probably near you somewhere. That, it's just magic. Yeah. That's like, I think, what's your favorite, what are your, I mean, that that's probably it, but your favorite conditions, favorite moments on foil? What are your, what are you searching for? You know what? I, I'm searching for like, like two to three feet Hawaiian scale, you know, four to six foot faces and long walls. Yeah. That's, you know, long walls where I can, you know, maybe do 10, 15 turns before I start pumping out. Yeah. Do you, do you get over to the, smooth. Do, you, do you get over, what do they call it? The, the chocolate factory or Willy Wonka's? Oh yeah. I've been, at, yeah, I've been there and you know, that place is good, but it, it's rarely like really glassy and smooth. Mm-hmm. But as far as being able to, you know, make 10 turns on one wave, easy, easily done there. Except it's so crowded. It's like part, part of the time that Part of the reason you wouldn't make a lot of turns is because someone's in your way. Right. Yeah, it looks like there's like a lot of longboarders laying around too. And there's all kind. I mean, there's like 80 foil boarders out there in some days. <laughs> What's the vibe like in the lineup? You know, in a spot like that where everyone's foiling or in spots where maybe people are just surfing? You know, is, here in Florida, I mean, our, our sandbars are so spread out. There's no scarcity whatsoever. We've got our, you know, kind of the beach at 14th, which is becoming kind of popular in the area for people foiling, but no one cares because it's just foilers and we drop in on each other and, you know, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Everybody's just having the time of their life. How is it in Hawaii where you have more defined spots and, you know, it's more of a precious resource there? You know what? As far as foiling so far, it, it seems like foilers are super cool with each other and they're, I mean, there's, I mean, there's some foilers that come out that aren't real cool and then they try to catch every single wave or they pump out and they just make that turn right in the section where everybody's waiting and, and you know, and, and it gets a little dangerous. So you, you always got those bad apples that create the bad vibe for the rest of the foil boarders, you know, and I think the only issues where there's bad vibes with these surfers and the foil boarders, and I think most of the time it's because they're haters because... They can't catch as much waves. They can't ride as long. They can't connect any waves. And, you know, just because of that, instead of joining us, they rather hate us. That's uh, that's one thing that I don't understand here. Like, our, our surf is pretty terrible almost all the time, and we're having so much fun. I just don't understand how people are, you know, not wanting to jump in. And see, I know, that, you know, it's, it's a more expensive <laughs> yep, yep. sport, and but you can get used year. I don't know. Yeah. Learning curve, maybe. What's the best advice a coach has ever given you? I think the best advice that a coach, I, in fact, I, you know what's funny? Because on my Instagram, I just posted it. It's He compared an olive tree to a weed. And the reason he was doing that is there were some racquetball players that would play games and they wouldn't do any drills, but they'd play games. But their experience in the game got them to get good really quick. But what happened was they hit a plateau and they cannot go past that plateau because they have no fundamentals. And he, so he said, olive tree takes 15 to 18 years to produce good olives, but the, it'll produce good olives for 80 years. Whereas a weed will pop in a few days. 
and they die in a few days. And so that was his comparison. Like, which one, which racquetball player would you rather be? And the one that takes his time developing the grassroots until finally you have good fruit that is, is what your payoff is. And then now you're going to stay there for 80 years. Or you want to be that weed that gets good super fast and then you're gone like a flash in a pan. And I think everything that I approach has the same philosophy. Like I don't, you know, like, like now I'm into fitness. So I try to tell my fitness people, there's no magic pill. Don't try to get skinny really fast because you're going to get fat just as fast as you got skinny. Instead, learn the basics of your body, learn the basics of, of nutrition and learn about training and take your time and lose one pound every two weeks, you know, and then those pounds will always stay off for the rest of your life because that's what you want. And that's what I promote in, in my fitness programs. How do you approach physical training for foiling with your, you know, training background? Yeah. Yeah. So foiling for me, the way I, and and I'm never going to be one of those long distance guys that can downwind. and, and, And I know that because that's, I'm a sprinter. I'm a, my body is designed to sprint and I've never been a long distance guy. So in other words, my muscle built, my muscle make is more, you know, the red and not the white. Yep. So I'm the same for way. me, it's about trying to develop the endurance, but working hard endurance and not like the, you know, and I always try to try to pump as light as possible to become the most efficient, but you know, that power always comes in handy. And so what I do is I still do Olympic lifting. And instead of trying to go as heavy as I can, I try to pump out reps to simulate that same muscle burn and develop what I call pain tolerance to, to that. And then being able to flush the lactic acid after you burnt your legs, you know? Mm-hmm. What are tricks for that? That's so, something that I use a, a halo gun. You know mm-hmm. what those are, like the massage guns. Like that's kind yeah, of. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in long sessions, exactly. I'll keep it in the car and I'll hit it and be halfway through. <laughs> what are some other? This is very selfish, right here, because that, that's my limiting factors: my back leg, my back calf. You know, will, will burn out, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Um, and I'm not ready to be done foiling yet. So, so what are some tricks mm-hmm. to, to keep me going longer, or all of us going longer? So, so what I do is I do a lot of one-legged squats. So I develop both legs because I feel like from foiling one leg gets worked way more in fact if you look at my two legs one leg's bigger than the other me too <laughs> so, yeah right so yep. if you look at every foiler you can tell yep do you, so do what you... i do is i always do single legs okay because you, know, you got to keep your body in balance because when your body starts going off balance then other things are gonna then you're gonna have other issues in the core when, when you do single leg squats do you go are you doing them weighted and do you go past uh, 90 degrees are you doing like deeper squats on them or no so i got I do two different ones. I do one called sissy squats, the one where you're leaning back. That way the angle of your knee doesn't go over your toe as much. Yep. That kind of hurts the front of my knee sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. So sometimes sissy squats can hurt the front of your knee. So like then for someone like you, I would say not do that. And you might want to do like, like what I do is like, I'll do deadlifts instead. Single leg deadlifts? Hamstring? Yeah, like single leg deadlifts, hit that hamstring. Like straight leg would hit the hamstring. Yeah. I'm doing like the regular where you're bending your knees, right? Okay. And there's this one where it's a single leg deadlift, but you're leaning forward and it burns like almost the same muscles as it does foil boarding. It's almost like you think of the angle. Like if you look at your angle, how you stand on a foil board, yep. you would simulate that on a one leg and you'd be holding the bar. 
and I try not to go any lower than I would foil boarding. I'd stay in that same range and I'll let it burn and I'll let it burn and I'll let it burn. And then I'll do the other leg and make it burn. And then I try to jog in place to make it go away. Jog in place to go away is a good, is a good tip. What about when you're in the water and you're getting that lactic acid buildup? Any tricks to get so rid of I, it? Yeah. So usually if I'm in the water and I, I just connected, you know, five waves that I rode for a while and I, and I'm burning out when I end that wave, as I'm paddling out, I'll, I'll kick my legs a little bit or I'll push myself back on my board and I'll just kick my way back out. Oh, that's an interesting tip right there. Yeah. And it, I, that's why I jog when I, you know, between my sets with the bar because mm-hmm. I, and I'm thinking of, of kicking, you know, just kicking my, kicking nice and slow, breaststroke kicks. Sometimes I'll just do regular flutter kick and I'll just keep going back and forth. And then the, you know, the pump in the legs slowly go away. That's a good one. What about diet? Diet is, is huge too, right? Because you'll find that if you, you know, not eating as good. And, and again, diet for each person is going to be different. Like depending on what your body's like, you're going to eat certain foods that make you feel good. And I think that's the key is you got to find what foods make you feel better. Like for me, I need more carbs. So like I'll start carving <laughs> up a little bit more and I'll, I'll even use like carb gels you know, like blocks and stuff like that. And I'll, and like, I think as you get older also, your body doesn't hold electrolytes. So like I'm 55, so I, I cramp a lot. Yep. So I make sure that I, I'm doing liquid IVs constantly like throughout the day. I just keep my, my, you know, my, my liquids up and I'm always throwing in some type of electrolyte drink throughout mm-hmm. the day. Yep, I, I'll do noons too. I've, I've, I've done them all, man. I use yeah. whatever. I've been crushing a lot of you know, the noons like, lately, man. If I get out of the water, I make sure I got carbs in the drink and I've got liquid. Uh, I, I'll do like amino acids or BCAAs. And then I'll follow up, you know, within an hour after that with, you know, a protein shake. Yeah. I don't do creatine. I, I Creatine makes my legs pump up too much. Does it? That's actually yeah, an interesting me, thought. I've, I've been doing about three grams a day. I find it's like a nootropic. I'm a big, you know, fan of nootropics things that just help me like yep. focus better. And I find that creatine is yep. a great nootropic. I don't think about it necessarily for the strength. Oh, really? I didn't know that it, it worked as a nootropic. I, I take regular nootropics. I mean, that definitely makes a huge difference. Um, so what I heard, I've, I've got a, a buddy who's one of my best friends and he's incredibly smart. And so he's down the rabbit hole on all this stuff all the time. And what he says is like, everybody thinks about creatine as like this muscle, but really it's creatine just helps in the energy cycle and your brain uses the most mm-hmm. energy. So if you're tapped out, yeah. your, your brain's tapped out. And so everybody could use, you know, like three grams supposedly doesn't do anything bad for you. You don't have to cycle on and off of it. You just do three grams. So I've been doing that for a little while. I like that. You were just saying something. What type of creatine? There's a different types of creatine, you know? I do just the, I'm wondering which one I do the creatine, creatine monohydrate. Like, I, I do, I've been fortunate to be a good friend of mine went to school with in, in like high school, like from the time we were kids has a company called pro mix nutrition. So I've, I've grandfathered my way into being a pro mix athlete, which is hilarious, <laughs> nice. but nice. so I get, he, it's all like re, really, it's all as clean as you can possibly get. He sources all like, mm-hmm. you know, his whey protein directly from organic cows and all that kind of stuff. It's rad. Mm-hmm. You guys check it out. Promix. Free plug. Al. Good dude, too. So, yeah, their creatine is, is the stuff that I do. What nootropics do you do? I do a couple different ones. Let me look at this bottle real quick. So, 
it's MRM, the Neuromax twos with nootropics. Okay. And I also do this drink called it's called Pre Step One. And it's it it's like a pre workout drink, but it doesn't have any caffeine or any ephedra or anything like that in it. But it has like two different forms of uh, nootropics in it. So it's got the like the alpha GPC. Okay. There's yeah. an alpha amylase. So it has both of those different ones that for me helps. Oh, and you know what's funny? Now that you talk about creatine, I'm looking at it. There's creatine nitrate in this. <laughs> and there's creatine HCl. Ah, oh, so you're getting a little bit. I am. Yeah. And I know this product works the nootropics really. I mean, because I got golfers that I train that use this. And like just at the Sony Open just a couple weeks ago, one of the golfers was like, you know what? I took it before we started and at the back nine i took it again and he goes my focus was unbelievable i haven't started trying yeah. like the, the the alpha brain is i guess the most popular one but yep. i haven't started trying those yet i need to yeah so there's this product called it's called uh, it's by prestige labs and then i mean if anyone like if you're interested in trying it or whatever i can uh, if someone dms me or texts me or whatever i have a link that gives you like Oh, killer. How, how does anyone reach out to you? What's your Instagram handle? Give it to everyone. Uh, it's under Egan Inoue. So if you just punch up Egan Inoue, it'll come up. Okay. I-N-O-U-E. Okay. What What else kind of uh, daily well-being, wellness regimen do you have? Is there yoga or meditation, I, anything else involved? Yeah. I mean, I don't call it meditation, but I do Wim Hof breathing. I've been doing that for about five years. Or over five years, actually. I love Wim. So, you know the Iceman? Oh, yeah. yeah. Wim. So I'm on his program. I have his app. I do his breathing thing every single morning. And I also do his, I like his push-up and I do his, his co-plunge stuff. Yep. Sauna? So, I'm big into Wim. Sauna. Sauna three times a week. Do you? Sauna cold, sauna cold. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm big into the heat and I'm not as big into the cold. And I got a good friend who keeps telling me I need to get into the cold, but I guess I spend a lot of time in 57 degree ocean water. Maybe that gets me there. <laughs> yeah, that can be a cold. <laughs> it's the last thing I feel like doing is hopping in a ice bath when I've just been freezing all day. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. No. This is epic. What, what else? What do we miss here? Anything that we missed? It's been a really fun conversation, so. I mean, man. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the other things that you were mentioning earlier was like, like how has coaching, how does coaching help me? Yeah. You know, is it, yeah. So I think the only reason I bring that up is because when I'm pumping and I'm starting to burn, I, because I train boot campers and I run boot camp classes, all of those little things that I tell people, I use it back on myself. So that really <laughs> helps me, you know, it, it helps me a lot because one of the things I always tell them is, and this is true study, it, when you get to the point where your brain is telling you you can't do anymore, you're only at 40% of your max and you have 60% left in your gas tank. And so like in my mind, just knowing that makes me, gives me the ability to maybe pump out for another wave and maybe another wave, you know, and it keeps pushing me. And I always tell my boot campers that, and it helps me. It, it turns around and it helps me a lot. Yeah. The other thing is like, I'm, because I'm a bootcamp instructor or a coach and I, you know, I do personal training, I make sure I stay in shape. So I got to make sure I eat right. I sleep right. I, everything I preach, I make sure I do because like I said earlier, I'm not going to go to a dentist that has bad teeth. Yep. You know, that's one of my big things in all sports as well. And 
if someone's telling me how great a foil is or give given it, the, the first thing I'll do is I'll go look and see what they're doing on it. <laughs> you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. it kind of tells you everything, you, you know, if someone can say a foil is great. Then you go watch them and the videos from riding a different foil two months ago or better. And you're like, okay, well, you know, maybe that doesn't hold water. Yeah. It's funny you talking about <laughs> co- coaching yourself there when you're pumping around. I used to have this trick. I used to, I'm someone who, who read Arnold Schwarzenegger's modern encyclopedia bodybuilding cover to cover like two or three <laughs> yeah, times. Yeah. Back in the day, I look back at that phase, though, of, you know, just working out for hours every day. It was so bad for so many of my joints. I wish I could go back and undo some. <laughs> yep. One of the tricks I used to have was, you know, whatever I was benching at the time or whatever. And, you know, someone would ask you what you, I'd always add, you know, five or 10 pounds to it. Something that I hadn't <laughs> done before that I knew that I could probably do. So then the next time uh-huh. you're in the gym, you had to do it because you put it out there. Yep. You had to do it. There was no going back on it. And that trick worked to just talk me into, you know, it's funny. I've actually connected. The first time I connected two waves, I told all my friends, dude, I could you <laughs> the next time they were with me, they're going to be watching. And I had to, and I, I, I did it. And I never did three waves, but I couldn't act too excited about it because I already told them I did it the day before. Yeah. <laughs> Jedi mind tricking yourself. Yeah, that's awesome. What's the worst coaching advice you've ever gotten? Everybody always focuses on the best, but... What's the, is there anything that stands yeah. out that was just, you look back on it, you're like, how'd this guy tell me that? You know, I see this all the time and it, 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 you, it never made sense, but you hear coaches coach people and they go harder, push harder. Whenever I hear that, I know that's a bad coach because they don't understand. Like you cannot just push harder. You got to be more specific. Like I never tell my boot campers, you got to put your You got to go a little harder. I got to get a little more specific. And I always go back to like, like go one at a time. And after you get one, go for two. After you got two, go for three. Or your legs are burning right now. I know they're burning. You know they're burning. But you know what? It's making you that much stronger. How strong do you want to be? That's why you want to push. That's why you want to go harder. Like, you know, like those kind of things I feel like. And as far as bad coaching, it's that. When they go harder, and I hear that in MMA, I hear that in Jiu-Jitsu, and I just look at—I I mean, in my head, I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, that's like the most horrible advice you give your your co- your student." Yeah, I might be guilty of of telling people just to get out to the next wave sometimes when we're foiling out back. This has been rad. I I really appreciate you coming on, Egan. This is how do people? Easy. That was fun. Yeah, man. I, I hope to get out there at some point and foil with all you guys. Like. I've, yeah, so many rad folks out in your area that I need to get out there and share some waves. How do folks find you? How do folks support you? Talk about your boot camps a little bit, and I'm sure there'll be some people who are listening to this who who want to you know learn from you more. It seems like you've got a, a wealth. I'm sure yeah. we just barely scratched the surface of all this. I mean, if you just put Google me, Egan E G A N I N O U E, you'll find. I mean, there's tons of stuff. I mean, on there, I mean, like it, it'll pop up. I'm super easy to find. I'm on Instagram, Egan Inouye. I'm Facebook, Egan Inouye. I have an athlete page because my pers- my regular page is maxed out at 5,000. But, you know, the athlete page can always be, as much people can follow that as possible. And I, you know, I do a lot of, I, I do a lot of mental stuff. I do a lot of like videos lately. Of course, I always, anytime I can get footage of myself foilboarding, it's on there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm easy to find. Just Google my name and I'm easy to find and you can follow me on Instagram. 
Epic. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I, I really enjoyed learning from you today. Thank this you. has been rad. All right. That was, that was fun for me too. And, you know, I'm glad if you got, you learned a thing or two, that'd be great. Absolutely. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you for coming on, brother. All right. You have a good evening. I'll talk to you soon. This is the Progression Project Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Anthemson.